called Praying the Bible, Praying the Bible. He's got a lot of experience with the topic of Christians and prayer. He worked in pastoral ministry for 24 years. He has now also taught at a Christian seminary with, on the area of biblical spirituality for 14 years. He also is a, is a popular conference speaker. So between teaching about it, talking to Christians, he has a lot of experience in understanding Christians and prayer, the highs and lows and so forth. And he begins his book with these words, quote, since prayer is talking with God, why don't people pray more? Why don't the people of God enjoy prayer more? I maintain that people, truly born again, genuinely Christian people, often do not pray simply because they do not feel like it. And the reason they don't feel like praying is that when they do pray, they tend to say the same old things about the same old things. He goes on to say that the problem we will feel lies with us. In other words, when we pray, we're praying to God, the God of the universe, about the most important things in our lives. And so if we lack interest in prayer, then it's got to be our fault, right? Not so fast. <laughs> you ever feel that way? Lack of interest in prayer? Sense of saying the same old things? A sense of guilt that you're thinking those things? Well, so, Whitney would like to give you a word of encouragement. The problem is not with you, but is with how you pray. The problem isn't with you, per se, but it is with how you pray. And the solution that he offers and that I would echo is this, biblical meditation, biblical meditation. Whitney is not offering with this solution some new thing, some new idea just to sell some books. Actually, meditation is a practice endorsed by Scripture itself, and down through the ages, many giants in prayer have greatly stressed its value, but unfortunately, their counsel has often gone unheeded. So are you interested in hearing a little bit more about biblical meditation? Are you? Today we're going to discuss it and how it can give you some very practical ways to grow your prayer life. And I'm convinced that if you take it seriously, it will change your life. It will change your life. Your prayer life will be differently. will be different. Personally, I've grown in meditation in recent years. See, I have a long way to go, but I will personally attest to its great value, along with so many in past history, church history, about its great value. So, just to recap again here, we're in this brief series on prayer. In the first few weeks, we, we discussed that question, what is prayer? Remember we said prayer is a personal communication with God. I said that prayer should be both communion-centered and kingdom-centered. Prayer is about fellowship with Almighty God, but it's also about kingdom-centered prayer, meaning we're asking God to spread his kingdom. We also said prayer is Trinitarian. 
God wants us to pray as he's revealed himself to us. Amen? We don't just pray however we want to pray. We pray how he's revealed himself to us. And he's revealed himself to us as a trinity. We should pray to each person of the trinity, but we see also this pattern in scripture. We should pray to the Father through the Son and in the Holy Spirit. That's what prayer is. Then last week we talked about how do we pray. In other words, what is the content of our prayer? And we discussed the Lord's Prayer as Jesus gives us six, six bedrock essential areas that we should have as part of our prayer lives. We talked about, unfortunately, those things become mechanical, right? And we sort of tune out our, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Remember the, the train whistle? Remember to do that one again? But we're supposed to take the Lord's Prayer, those six petitions, and then personalize them for ourselves. Jesus tells us how he wants us to pray. So the Lord's Prayer, friends, is, is essential, but it's not exhaustive. It's not exhaustive. So I want to continue our discussion of how to pray. And this morning we're going to focus on biblical meditation. So let us start off with a question. What is biblical meditation? And from the outset, it's important that we distinguish between biblical meditation and what is often practiced in our culture, which often has roots in Eastern religions, such as various forms of Hinduism and Buddhism, where meditation means a person empties their mind to come to an awareness that all reality is one, and you are that reality. That means that everything else is an illusion. It also means that you don't really exist as a distinct human being. Rather, you are that reality. And the root of your problems stems from the fact that you don't realize it. And so you meditate to empty your mind and come to an awareness that you are that reality. Now, obviously... That is not what scripture refers to when it speaks of meditation. In the Bible, meditation does not refer to emptying your mind. It's the exact opposite. It refers to filling your mind. Filling your mind with God as he has revealed himself in scripture and in his world, but primarily through scripture. Psalm 77 verse 12 says, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Psalm 145 verse 5 says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. So the idea of meditation means then that you're not only just hearing the scriptures or reading the scriptures, but it's making an impact, right? You're thinking about it. You're engaging with it. You're turning it over in your mind. You're trying to grasp its meaning. You're, you're connecting with how, it's, how it connects with other Bible passages. You're applying it to your life. And ideally, you should meditate all day long. Psalm 119 verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So in meditation, our minds... Soak up scripture. Everybody got that? 
In case you don't, here's an illustration. Favorite pastime at Easter is to dye eggs for a lot of people. And as you know, if you've ever dyed eggs with children, when you have the little bowls of the dye and so forth, and you say, hey, okay, put your, your egg in that dye, and they want to put it in, and do they like to sit around and watch it soak up for a long time? Now, they want to put it in and then instantly take it out, and they're like, why hasn't it changed color a whole lot? Not the most patient of creatures, right? So what do you have to do? You have to tell them, no, you got to let the egg sit in there. You got to let the, the dye attach to the eggshell. And then it starts giving it this rich, dark colors, the reds and the yellows and the greens and so forth. The more time, the deeper the stain. And it's the same with us. Truth doesn't just instantly change us very often. We need to soak up the word. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And that word richly communicates in abundance. So God wants scripture to soak into our minds so that we think about who he is and how he wants us to live. So everybody, you got that? What is biblical meditation? It's just simply thinking deeply, richly about scripture. So that leads to the second question. How does meditation help prayer? Well, when we pray, if we're honest, we often blank out, don't we? Our minds drift. You ever pray and you're like, how did I end up over there? Right? I mean, you're thinking about something that happened three weeks ago or who your favorite football team is and how they're going to do next year and this, that, and the other. And your mind is just wandering all over the place. You're like, what happened? As they say, our minds aren't filled with wonder, but wander. And that's very often the case. And then we often fall into these patterns of praying the same old things, don't we? We just sort of resort to what we have maybe heard before, and we pray over and over these same old things. And even if we've just read the Bible, say we've had a nice time reading the Bible, just had a great time learning from the Gospel of John, we get done with our time, we've learned some, some wonderful truths there, reminded of truths, we close our Bible and then we go to pray, and then we feel like we're starting from scratch, right? Or you're trying to go from first gear to fifth gear, and it just doesn't quite go. Scripture reading is disconnected to prayer. But meditation is the link between scripture reading and prayer. It's the link. It's the bridge. Meditation fills our minds with truth, which then overflows, spills over into prayer. Your mind is molded and motivated to pray. Don Whitney says, we pray about what we've encountered in the Bible, now personalized through meditation. And not only do we have something substantial to say in prayer and the confidence that we are praying God's thoughts to him, but we transition smoothly into prayer with a passion for what we're praying about. So let me get just very nuts and bolts practical, okay, so that we can be helped in our prayer lives. 
me just say there's not one way to meditate. I don't want to come across that way. There's not one way. There, there are many different ways that people have meditated on Scripture through the years. But here are three suggestions just to help us along. First, meditate on your Scripture reading. You might have a Bible plan where you're reading this, that, and the other in the Scripture. You're trying to read it the whole, whole, the Bible in a year. Or you're reading, focusing on a gospel or the Old Testament or something. Take those passages, right? Read a passage of Scripture, whether it's a chapter or multiple chapters, and then simply meditate on a verse that you have just read. Go back and find a verse that spoke to you. Maybe it was a verse that you found incredibly relevant for your situation right now in life. Maybe you just found it very interesting. Maybe the Holy Spirit just, boom, knocked you on the head and said, I want you to go back to that verse. Whatever it might be, but you do your Bible reading and then you go back and you meditate on something that struck you. Go word by word through that verse or take it in chunks or take the whole verse all at once and just sit back and meditate on what you have just read. Some people will go verse by verse. They'll take a verse, they'll read it, meditate on it, feel like they've come to a place of stopping, and then move on to the next verse. Now, getting a little bit more specific about prayer and meditation, let me encourage you to utilize the prayers of the Bible, right? To take those prayers that were inspired by God and then use them in your own prayer lives. Like the Lord's Prayer, like we just said, the Old Testament Psalms, right? Those Psalms cover the whole spectrum of human existence, don't they? Every emotion, every situation, use those psalms or go to the, the psalms of, of Paul that are so rich in Christian living. Take your scripture reading and use it to meditate. Amen? Second, meditate on a doctrine. Maybe a particular doctrine comes to mind as you're reading the Bible for whatever reason. For example, you, you just you're, you think about who God is, the attributes of God. Who is he? What has he done and so forth? Remember last fall, we did a whole series on the attributes of God, God's love, God's power, God's mercy, all those different attributes. Meditate on those. Think about his omniscience. You ever think about his omniscience, the fact that God knows everything? He knows the almost infinite amount of stars that are in the universe. He knows them all by name. He knows all the atoms in the universe where they are. And he knows all the possibilities that could ever come about, right? Not only what has happened, but what would have happened if this, that, and the other. Wow. Wow. So when you meditate on God's omniscience, it should stir your heart to praise. But you know what? As you kind of meditate further on God's omniscience, it also changes how we confess our sin, doesn't it? You just realize that God knows everything about you. He knows the depths of our thoughts and our motives, doesn't he? He knows the things that we think about that are tainted by pride. 
greed, and so forth. He's the only person you can't hide anything from, right? There's no fooling God. So doesn't that then motivate us to want to come clean before God? I mean, like, really come clean before God? I think meditation prevents us from developing a one-dimensional view of God that we all kind of gravitate toward. God is a God of love, and that's, that's how I see God. He is a God of love. But as you meditate on other doctrines about God, other attributes of God, your mind's going to be stretched to see this God who is an all-consuming, glorious God, who is more than that. Or you might resonate with God as a judge, and that's how I see God. He is a God of justice, but he's also a God of infinite tender mercy and compassion. But you don't get that if you don't meditate upon it, right? very easy to put God in a box, but let me, try, let me guarantee you, you will not put God in a box if you meditate on who he is. Meditate on a doctrine and let it guide your prayers. Third, meditate on the gospel, and by that I mean just simply the good news that Jesus is who he is and what he accomplished on the cross, and let me give you a great, just a really great verse. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, Paul isn't telling us to sit around and think about what Jesus physically looked like. The Bible never talks about what Jesus looked like. It's really of no interest. But what it is talking about there is who Jesus is and as God in human flesh and what he did for us on the cross, we're to, we're to think about that. We're to behold that, aren't we? We're to ponder that and not just sort of think about it and agree with it. Okay, I believe that happened. But to behold who Jesus is and to behold what he did on the cross for us and to wonder about it, to love it, to treasure it. And that doesn't happen with a passing glance, does it? That happens as we think long and hard about who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. And notice what it said there. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Goal of the Christian life is to become like Christ, right? Say that periodically. Well, this happens as we behold the gospel, as we behold the gospel. We start becoming more and more like Christ. So friends, prayer is more than making requests to God. It is that, but it's more than that. Prayer is more than just a sense of emotion and feeling that we have in the presence of God. It is that, but it's more than that, isn't it? Prayer leads to transformation. God wants to transform you. He doesn't want to just punch your ticket and send you to heaven. He wants to transform you now. And friends, we should meditate until our hearts change. And I think this is exactly where a lot of us miss the boat in the Christian life. We should preach to ourselves and apply the gospel to our own hearts.
For example, yesterday my Bible reading stumbled across Philippians 2.14, which says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now it can be very tempting to say, well, I'm glad I don't do that. But is that true? Thank you, Billy. Thank you. Friends, let me ask you. This is something you should meditate on. If you grumble a lot, do not just confess it and then keep on living your life and then keep on grumbling and then keep on coming back. God doesn't want that. God doesn't want that. How does that change you? Right? If anything, you, you might confess that you grumbled and you don't have any intention of changing. You're probably just going to be tempted to be proud of yourself that, oh, I confess that, and God has got to be really pleased with me. And so maybe I'll answer that prayer over there about that request because I confess that grumbling. Meditate on the sin of grumbling. Put it up on the table. Put it up on the table. What are you saying about God when you grumble? What are you saying about God when you grumble? You're shaking your fist at how he runs the world, right? Or you think that he is so weak that he can't control the world. Or if you know that he runs it far better than you, then why do you repeatedly and mindlessly grumble and complain about it? Ugh, right? So meditate on why you resort to that sin. Why do you go back to it all the time? God doesn't want you just to confess it and go back to it, confess it, go back to it, confess it, go back to it. He wants you to stop in your tracks and meditate on it. To look in your heart and say, why do I always complain? Why do you not trust him more? And then ask God to help change your mind, change your heart. And meditate on how God wants you to live. A life that will overcome. A life that will fill, be, be filled with gratitude. And a sense, a greater sense of trust in him. Now you're saying, oh, okay, that sounds great, pastor. I do that one time and I'll never grumble or complain again. I'm not saying that. Deeply ingrained sins often don't change overnight. But what I am saying is that if we will stop and meditate on these things, you know what? You can put a good dent in it. And as you keep praying and meditating over these things, it's amazing how you can start living in greater and greater victory the way God has designed his people to live. So friends, prayer is about transformation. And meditation brings this about. I cannot emphasize that enough. As I said, many prayer, 
great prayer giants have practiced meditation. And I'd like to tell you the testimony of a remarkable man named George Mueller who lived during the 19th century in England. He owned an orphaned, an, operated an orphanage that at some points cared for as many as 2,000 kids at a time. And he also supported mission work around the world. Despite these incredible expenses, he never once asked for a donation. People simply donated, he prayed, and God provided. During his life, over half a billion dollars was funneled through his ministry. Never asked for a dime. And his prayer life was stunning. In his journals, he recorded over 50,000 answered prayers. Now, there's no question that God's hand rested on George Mueller in an incredible way. I don't know that it's wise to say, I'm going to be just like George Mueller. But I think there's some things we can learn from him. George Mueller recounts that for 10 years or so, he used to wake up every morning, change his clothes, and then he would pray. Unfortunately, he says, his mind would wander around sometimes taking up to half an hour before he could really start praying. But things started changing when he started doing what? Meditating. He writes in his book, the book The Life of Trust, quote, the first thing I did after having asked in a few words the Lord's blessing upon his precious word was to begin to meditate on the word of God. Searching, as it were, into every verse to get blessing out of it. Not for the sake of the pulpit, excuse me, the public ministry of the word. Not for the sake of preaching on what I had meditated upon. But for the sake of obtaining food for my own soul. The result I have found to be invariably this. That after a few minutes, a very few minutes, my soul has been led to confession. Or to thanksgiving. Or to intercession. Or to supplication. So that though I did not as it were give myself to prayer. But to meditation it turned almost immediately more or less into prayer. When thus I have been for a while making confession or intercession or supplication. Or I have given thanks. I go on to the next words or verse. Turning all as I go on into prayer for myself or others. As the word may lead me. <clears throat> may lead to it. But still continually keeping before me that food for my own soul is the object of my meditation, end quote. So Mueller would, he, he would obtain food for his own soul, right? Not just for preaching a sermon, but for his own soul by meditating on scripture. Now, it brought immediate impact on his life. He also notes how that, you know, he would often then use that, what he meditated. It was amazing how God would use that in talking to other people and so forth. But he needed first to be fed in his own soul. And meditation dramatically changed his life. He says, I dwell so particularly on this point because of the immense spiritual profit and nourishment I am conscious of having derived from it myself. And I affectionately and solemnly beseech all my fellow believers to ponder this matter. You guys pondering it out there? 
Really something to consider. I totally agree. Because meditation provides constant spiritual nourishment. If you're not convinced, let me just read the words from Psalm 1. The opening words. He says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And listen to this. And who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit and season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So friends, if you meditate on scripture, you will bear fruit. You will bear fruit. It is a promise of scripture. You will have a spiritual vitality and and an integrity. You will not wither. You will not wither. Just like a tree near a stream will always have a sense of nourishment. So too the believer who nourishes, excuse me, who meditates on the word of God will always bear fruit and not wither. So many times we focus on, God, if you could just get me out of this circumstance, then I'll be okay. When all along God is saying, I've planted you here, and I want you to be, if you will only, excuse me, plant yourself in the word of God, you will be nourished regardless of the circumstances. It's not wrong to pray for circumstances to change. That's fine. They may or may not, but the rock-solid promise of God is that you will be nourished, you will bear fruit, and you will not wither if you will meditate on the word of God. So friends, meditation will help us how to pray. You will not run out of things to say. There's a lot here. You'll not say the same old things. Now, of course, you're going to pray about the same issues in your life, obviously. But your prayers will have a sense of freshness and vitality because they're going to be infused and empowered by Scripture. So, friend, let me encourage you to meditate this week. Maybe pick your favorite psalm and go that direction. Use the Lord's Prayer. But just resolve to start incorporating this time-honored, biblically-based practice in how to pray. I want to close by discussing something that also helps us how to pray and something we should practice. And that is corporate prayer, praying together. I'm just going to say a few words about this. Why do I say that? I've noticed that as you spend time praying with others, who are hungry for prayer, you learn how to pray yourself. You see how they pray. You learn the words they say. You feel their passion for prayer. You're challenged by their sincerity, by their humility as they pray, not not in the air to an audience, but they're just praying to God, right? You're encouraged by their faith toward God and answers to prayer. We have a lot to learn from others when we pray together. (coughs) And I believe that God meets us in a special way 
when we gather together to prayer. There's just a power. There's a dynamism when God's people gather to pray that it's just not the same when we're by ourselves. Church, God wants us to pray together. (coughs) Got to finish up here. I'm on my last leg. We went to the Lord's Prayer last week. I didn't mention it, but have you ever noticed the fact that the Lord's Prayer is given entirely in the plural? Our, we, us. We should pray for those things individually. But I cannot help but think that the Lord also meant us to be praying that corporately. And then if you study the book of Acts that describes the history of the early church, you notice how they're often praying together, aren't they? (coughs) And that's no accident. Their emphasis on prayer was a model for us. In Acts 1, in the upper room, they're all praying together. Boom, then what happens? Pentecost in Acts 2. And then after, or it's after Pentecost happened, it says of the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were devoted to that. And Acts 4, after they had been released from prison for preaching the gospel, they prayed for boldness, and it was answered. In Acts 12, Peter was arrested for preaching the gospel, face execution, but the church prayed. They prayed, and he was delivered. I love the great quote from the the famous Puritan writer, Thomas Watson. He said, quote, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. (laughs) Acts 13, they prayed at the church in Antioch, and the Holy Spirit said, send Paul and Barnabas out, and they went out into the Roman Empire. And we know the rest is history, right? The birth of the missions. But regardless of the impact, the point is that they pray together. So as we're trying to focus in on prayer for these few weeks and saying, how can we grow in prayer? How do I pray? Let me encourage you to pray with others. Pray with others. (coughs) Pray with someone in your life. But also pray with the church. We have a Friday prayer, a Sunday prayer in the morning. If there's other times that you say, you know, I would love to be part of one of these things. I can't make those. Let me know. We'd love to have other times when people are coming to pray together. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for bearing with my voice during the message. And I hope God will use that in some way strengthen us, we will be refreshed and renewed and have a newfound hunger to pray. Amen? Amen. (coughs) Let's go to the Lord. (coughs) Lord, as I think about my life, And I think about probably my biggest regret in my life would be is not praying more. (coughs) So, Lord, I pray that you would accept my confession of that. 
and perhaps those here today who might feel the same. And Lord, for accepting prayer lives that are just kind of filled with brief and repetitive prayers that lack sincerity. We want to repent of that today, Lord. We're thankful that you are who you are, ready to forgive. God, we pray that you would send a fresh wind in our sails when it comes to prayer. That you would encourage us through this time in your word <coughs> to continue to grow us in prayer. God, we need to be reminded of who you are and who we are praying to. To be awestruck over your righteousness and your holiness but yet also so drawn in by your tenderness and your kindness and your patience with us. And Lord, as we spoke this morning about meditating on your gospel, Lord, we never grow past that. We never grow past your gospel. Lord, we also know that there's a point, though, as believers, that we look back and we recognize there was an entry point where we placed our faith and trust in you. And Lord, I pray that for someone here today who wants to know you, who wants to have a prayer life, but recognizes they don't truly know you. God, may they turn to you today in a childlike trust and faith to recognize that they have sinned before a great and mighty God. But there's a wonderful Savior waiting to meet them at the cross. And they can begin a lifelong, glorious journey of knowing you, especially through the wonderful privilege of prayer. Thank you so much, Lord for this time in your word. We ask your blessing. May you imprint these things on our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Amen.